Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and moderator each week. Today, our guest is going to talk about all things technology, specifically AI, artificial intelligence, and how it's sweeping the landscape of organizations, industries worldwide, and how your organization could, in fact, become an AI-first company. Our guest today is a renowned investor and the author of the recently released book, The AI-First Company, How to Compete and Win with Artificial Intelligence. Ash Fontana, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for joining us. It's not every day, or in fact, it's never, that we actually have had someone on to talk about the role that technology plays in, in, in advancing our cultures, our competitive advantage. It is time that we did that, and today we've chosen to dedicate that topic to you because you are one of the nations, one of the world's foremost thought leaders as it relates to creating an artificial intelligence culture, a competitive advantage. And so what I'm going to ask you to do today, after we talk a little bit about your history, is sort of give mm. us a primer in what is AI and why should everyone care? Most of us just know that it's coming and, quote, going to take our jobs, which, of course, is an absurd statement. But we'll talk about the impact it's going to have on careers, education, and how we choose to train our children and, and those after us as well. Ash, before we get into the topic of AI, take a minute or two and, and allow our viewers and our listeners from around the world to better understand your journey that brought you to writing this book. For sure. Um, I think, you know, it starts when I was a kid. I, I liked doing two things which were completely disconnected and I had no way of figuring out how they came together. One was pulling apart computers um, quite literally and putting them back together and figuring out how they work. And another was pulling apart companies, you know, looking at financial statements, looking at articles, um, strategic an analyses of companies and sort of trying to figure out what made a company good or bad. And these are two completely unrelated interests. And it wasn't until much later in my teens that I was reading about this thing called Venture Capital in a magazine that it all sort of came together to me that there was a job out there where you could support lots of companies building technology. And so my journey here sort of had that tension when I was a kid of these interests and what am I going to do with these two things? I don't know which one I like better. And then sort of led to the point where I found something that I can combine both um, or that allows me to combine both. And then, you know, investing in technology companies for a, a bit over a decade, I sort of realized what technology was starting to become both really important, but was still really hard to build. And that technology was artificial intelligence. And I just saw a huge amount of potential in it, but a lot to still figure out, not just on the technical side, but, you know, how to bring it to market, how to actually use it for our advantage. And so I decided to just focus my whole career on that. You know, if you, you spend enough time in an area, um, after a while, you realize what edges of that area are really promising in terms of uh, pushing, what frontiers are good to push. Um, and so I, I chose the frontier of artificial intelligence um, around the time when there was a huge resurgence in research and potential coming from it. And um, that's what I've done. I focused on that. I invest in companies that build that. I work for founders that build companies um, and build artificial intelligence technologies. I speak about it. I think about it. I get involved in policy initiatives on it. And now I've got this book that tries to bring all of that knowledge and put it in one place. 
So Ash, the book is extraordinary. Uh, if anybody wants to build their career, buy two copies of this book, read mm. it yourself, and then send one to the CEO of your organization because she or he probably knows very little about AI unless they are a technology-oriented leader, which very few are in most organizations. In fact, I think a lot of companies are struggling with AI because you have non-technical leaders leading highly technical people. In fact, most CEOs I know know they need it, but don't really know what to do about it and how to contain it. We'll talk about that in a moment. I think one of the best parts of this book, so buy a copy for yourself, buy one for your CEO, and send it to her or him and tell them that they would benefit from reading it. Uh, your timing is perfect in the book. I think one of my favorite parts of the book is the glossary. And that sounds kind of mm. dumb, but you took the time to write out like a 20-page glossary of every term a business leader needs to know whether she or he is, you know, tech forward or not. Would you take a few moments and kind of level set, assuming that the vast majority of our listeners and viewers, of course, have heard of AI and could, everyone could give a 15-second overview of AI. Very few people could give a 16-second overview. Take a few moments and educate all of our listeners, including me, on why AI is so important, why we all should be obsessed with understanding it, and what does the future look like in terms of industries and most companies in terms of adopting AI? It's a broad question, I know. For sure. It's so important because it's a really powerful tool. And what does a tool do? It gives you leverage. It gives you a way to get more from less, you know, get more output from less input, get more food using less fertilizer, get more bottles out of a production line using less plastic or whatever it is, get you more from less. And that's why it's really important to understand AI because it's a powerful tool. You know, why now? Because it actually works now. You know, it actually works in terms of being able to identify objects in an image really reliably. Um, being able to pull information out of troves of text that's completely unstructured all over the place and deliver that information to you at the time when you need to make a decision. So that's why now, um, and I'm really glad that you brought this up because the, the idea of the glossary that is, because what I really tried to do is create a book that stands on its own two feet. You don't have to read anything else. In the entire book, it's about 300 pages, there are less than 10 footnotes. Um, you don't have to go to another book. You don't have to refer to anything else. It's all there. And this leads to the final thing I'll say is, I think this is really important for people to, to realize and really empowering to realize is that you don't need a PhD in machine learning. You don't need to be at a company with millions of dollars to dedicate to research and development. You don't need access to massive amounts of computing infrastructure to get started. Um, you can get started with a really simple problem, which is I want to see around the corner a little bit. I want to be able to make this prediction. I want to be able to automate this thing that is just really annoying to do every month at the end of every month, takes me five hours. I want to automate that. So you don't need a huge amount of resources. You just need an idea of what you could automate or what you would like to be able to predict and that can be enough to get you started. Ash, take it a step further. Your book is titled The AI First Company. What does mm -hmm. that mean? How do you define an AI first company in terms of mindsets, 
thinking, strategy, budget, all those things you address in the book. Yeah. Um, an AI first company is a company that sort of recursively puts AI first, but AI first in what? That's the question. And it's AI first in conversations about people, products, pricing, policy, and whatever has, happens to be on the priority list for your organization. You know, and let's go through those things and, and give an example. You know, putting AI first when you're talking about people means considering, okay, what people could we hire that help us manage or gather data better? What people can we hire that can help us think through how to run little experiments to make better predictions and better decisions? You know, then we move into products. When we make products, how do we make them so that they not only um, help us, you know, do something, execute a workflow, um, you know, move something around, calculate something, but how do those products themselves gather more data so that next time we make that decision, we can make it better? You know, how do we not just sort of buy a product that uh, is like a nice form for people to fill in that makes it slightly easier, but actually figures out what data to collect when people are filling out that form. So next time that it half fills out the form automatically. Um, so when you're talking about products, putting AI first is about figuring out how you can build data collection into the products. Putting AI first in conversations about pricing would be, for example, making a decision like, well, let's price this a bit lower to start with so that we get more people using it so that we collect more data, so that we can actually build a better product over time. So putting AI first in each of these conversations allows you to think about making decisions that set you up to really be a company that is highly automated and that is able to see around the corner. Um, because you know the corollary of this is if you don't put AI first, you then it's really hard to just sprinkle it on later. It's really hard to just go, all right, now we want to do AI if you don't have any data or if you don't have anyone around that can run data science experiments or if you haven't really thought about, you know, how you optimize your pricing and your packaging of your product to just get a lot of usage and get a lot of data. It's really hard to do that after the fact, um, but it's really easy if you start every conversation with that. Ash, perhaps to your horror, I was recently on an AI panel that I was asked to join to talk about the right. leadership side of AI. In some of my research, I was interviewing an MIT expert on AI, and he told me that 60 to 85% of most AI initiatives fail, typically because, like what I said earlier, you've got these non-technical leaders, like myself, you know, former chief marketing officer, that are leading highly technical experts. And there is the inevitable conflict. The, the, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, the AI engineer or data expert might have extraordinarily high IQ, but might have not as high EQ. And the non-technical leader has high EQ, knows their business model very well, and they both think each other are idiots, or at least they're not speaking the same language. And the business leader thinks that the AI professional is deep into a hairball and you know a, a, a giant boondoggle, and the AI people think that the business leaders don't get it for the future and it all blows up and it gets shut down. Now, that of course isn't the case all the time, but to the extent any of that is true and other leaders find themselves in that, what advice do you give to very competent business unit leaders that are 
wanting to tiptoe into this, but they don't know how, or they've been burned, they're worried about what they need to do differently? That's a great question. And I think you have highlighted some really significant problems that do happen when people sort of try to take on a big AI project. You know, I think there are a few elements to this, to ensuring success. One is making sure that obviously you framed up the problem, you know, and framing it up in a way where it's really clear what the return will be from day one and the return in dollars and cents, not the return in terms of, you know, we get to say we're doing something cool, but in terms of we're going to automate this thing and it's going to save us this much time, which is going to save us this much money, or we're going to predict demand better, which means we're going to waste less. We're going to produce less. So we have to discount less at the end of the season. If you think about like the apparel industry, for example, and being able to predict demand better. So one really framing it up in dollars and cents terms. And, and a lot of people don't do this because they think of, as you said, AI is this sort of side research project. And if it works great, if it doesn't, it, it's fine. Um, that's not good enough. So that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, keeping the experiments small. You know, it's not the case that you have to make every experiment one that involves using all these fancy methods and whatever else. Just start with a really simple statistical model you can run on one machine and that you can get an output from really quickly. Um, because, you know, if the, if the investment is lower, not only will the ROI be higher, quite obviously, but people will be able to understand the output and see output more quickly. And I think the third thing is around organizational structure. And we can dig into this a bit more, but briefly, it's keeping the people that are building these things close to the business unit so they really have a good feel for the problem. You know, I think as you highlighted, as you asked this question, a lot of the time, these people are sort of off in a silo and they get given a brief and then they go away and they maybe like make a model or whatever else. And then they come back with the output and it's just sort of not really what people want. And it's because they're not embedded in the business every day and don't really understand yeah. the nuance of, of the problem or how the, um, the output of the system will be used. Um, so this idea of like decentralizing talent rather than keeping it all in one like center of excellence, um, I think is really helpful. And there's a way to structure your organization to make sure that, you know, the, the experts in the field uh, are kept close to the business units. I think that's really important as well. I think the final thing I'll say is, you know, putting in place some controls from day one to make sure these things don't, don't get out of control. And so, for example, you know, if you're generating um, text to put in marketing copy, like using AI to generate product descriptions for your e-commerce website, because writing out those product descriptions, like this is a red blouse or this power adapter is good in these countries, just takes a lot of time. And you don't really need a person to do that. AIs can do that. Um, just making sure that it doesn't generate text that doesn't make any sense or is maybe has like an offensive term in it or something yeah. like that. So putting some checks and balances in place on day one just increases people's confidence that it's going to be okay. Ash, in the book, you introduced this concept I'd not heard of called uh, DLEs, data learning effects. In essence, the automatic compounding of information. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do we need to know about that for the, 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 the leader, the manager, the director, the executive vice president, CEO who's listening, who knows that she or he needs to get on board with AI in their industry? 
what are DLEs and other kind of need-to-know concepts to get people's acumen heightened so that they can start asking the right questions? Maybe you don't have the answers, but I can ask the right questions to know which way to go first. Mm. Yeah, this is the imperative. You know, in this age where we have this really powerful tool, um, we have a new type of competitive advantage, but we don't have any way of talking about that because we're trying to use these existing ways we think about competitive advantage to define it. We try to use this idea of like a scale effect and say, well, data is the new oil. If we just have a lot of data, we'll be ahead of our competition. It's not really the case. Like just a whole bunch of data doesn't really help you do anything. Um, we try to think about network effects because, you know, we understood them after looking at all these social networks come to bear. Um, but what you really get with AI is not like a network effect because it actually compounds a bit more quickly and operates a bit differently. And we sort of think of AI post the big data era, or at least the start of the big data era, as like giving us some way to generate an insight. But that's sort of really just learning how to understand your customer better and better. It's a learning effect. It doesn't really fully capture it. So the point is we've got this new powerful tool and this new way it offers a competitive advantage by automatically compounding information and letting you predict and automate things better. But we didn't have, or we don't have until this book came out today, a language to describe it. And so that's why I coined this term, the data learning effect. It's so that Anyone who's in any sort of role where they're setting strategy can explain the sort of competitive advantage this gives you and then how you can make strategic decisions to build it, to allocate capital to building it. And so I'll just quickly go through the three components of a DLE um, so that people can understand you know, what you, components you have to build to have a DLE. One is a critical mass of data. You know, for some predictions, you need a lot of data to make it. So others, you, you need a smaller amount. But the point is you need a certain amount, a critical mass of it. Two, capabilities to process that data, turn it into information. Just having a bunch of zeros and ones doesn't tell you anything. But cleaning up that data, labeling it, adding context to it so that you it represents some information about your customer, for example, um, is a capability that you have to develop. And then three, building a network of models that teach each other. So, you know, one statistical model might, might figure out, okay, um, this shelf is empty or full. It analyzes the image and just spots a gap in a shelf. The next level of statistical model, it spits that out to the next level and it says, there's a box there or there's a can there. And then it goes, okay. And then it feeds it into the next level. You know, that box says this, on the front or it um, it doesn't say this on the front it says 200 grams or 500 grams the point is you have all these, these network of models that teach each other things and so they're the three components it's getting a critical mass of data having the capability to process it into information and then feeding that information into models that learn from that to again spit out a prediction or something like that they're the three components of a data learning effect and it's really important to understand that that's what a data learning effect is so that you know where you need to allocate capital or, or time, people, whatever else, whatever resource you have to build it. Ash, you dedicate a whole chapter about building an AI team, right? The, the mm. types of roles you need, their job descriptions, their cost, how you find them, how you find them unconventionally. 
I'm guessing you know, the, the AI staffing process is crucial to scaling and ramping up any automated learning, automated information um, in initiative. But what are the biggest contributors to AI implosion? If you're, if you're talking to then right now, the leader of an organization that, that knows they need to get going, what are the first things they need to do? When you say get data, I mean, that's a pretty big initiative, right? And mm. practically, what are some first, other than reading your book, which I actually think is a good start, what are some next steps a leader needs to do to get ahead of their competition on how to leverage AI in their company? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot to do, but I think it can just go back to the start of what a DLE is. You know, the first thing to do is to get data. Um, and that doesn't have to be, um, as you maybe sort of pointed out there, it doesn't have to be some massive project. You know, a lot of companies just accidentally collect data. Um, they collect data through usage of their product. They're collecting data on like who's clicking on what or who's buying what. Um, they collect survey data when they run their regular customer feedback surveys. A lot of companies are accidentally collecting a lot of data. Um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be a big project. It also doesn't have to be a big project because there are lots of weird and wonderful ways to collect data that aren't expensive or time consuming or whatever else. And I'll add a lot of them in the book. Um, and also your existing customers have a lot of their own data that you can work with them to get and then feed into a model that ultimately helps them. So, you know, that's a, that's a starting point. Um, the next point is to just run some sort of experiment. And, you know, I have this methodology called Lean AI, which is we're all about starting small, starting with a simple statistical model um, that you can just run with one person and generate an output that's very understandable, a graph or a report or something like that, um, so that you can then go, all right, this worked, this didn't work, it provided this value, what can we invest in next? Um, so I think, you know, it's sort of contending with the premise of your question. It doesn't have to be that hard to get started. You probably already have a bunch of data that you can process into information and apply to a prediction problem um, or use to start getting some semblance of automation in your business. Ash, you're a bit of a technology futurist by, by many accounts. Uh, we're taping this in early May when your book is releasing. What does the future look like? What's the landscape? Maybe it's different industry by industry, but generally speaking, what does the next year to two look like in relation to AI disrupting industries and maybe perhaps even giving some organizations a remarkably competitive advantage over others mm. because they do it right? Yeah, good question. I really like how you framed it in terms of just the next year or two, because this field moves so fast. Um, I think right now, you know, what I'm watching as being particularly impactful over the next year or having the potential to be particularly impactful is a lot of the stuff that's happening around text processing. You know, text is really hard to work with for a machine because a machine can't sort of read entire paragraphs and get the context and understand sort of how that paragraph fits into the page, fits into the book, fits into the whatever. And it's really been hard for machines to understand that because they were very limited by the, um, the computing that happened. Um, you could only put in like a line or two at a time. Over the last year or two, there's been some really good advances there. 
And without needing to go into what's changed on the technology side, the punchline is, you know, we can now process huge volumes of text and understand the meaning behind paragraphs and paragraphs at a time and extract themes and whatever else from that. Not only can we process that and understand the meaning, but we can generate text. And so, for example, generate product descriptions just by looking at an image or generate um, uh, job descriptions by looking at lots of other job descriptions. That's really, really cool. And what's happened over the last couple of years is the research has been done to make this possible. But what hasn't happened yet, and the products haven't been developed to do those specific things, generate product descriptions, advertising copy, job descriptions, or whatever else. And so I think some companies are going to come around in the next year or two that build the products on top of that underlying technology and um, make it really useful for people, you know, in lots of different functions, in the HR function, in the recruiting function, in the advertising and marketing function, et cetera. Ash, I want to, as our final question, have you think of four or five questions for a moment. Pretend you're speaking to a senior business leader that are very competent running their business, but in many cases, they're unconsciously incompetent when it comes to AI. What questions should they be asking the CTO, the CIO, the AI engineer or data scientist that they hired to kind of, you know, cobble together? What questions should the senior business leader that knows little to nothing until they read your book about how mm -hmm. AI can progress their business? What are the four or five big questions, open-ended questions these leaders should be asking to make sure they don't find themselves in a AI boondoggle and part of that 60 to 85% casualty statistic. Yeah, that's a really good um, way to frame it up um, because you don't really have to ask that many questions to get to the bottom of what your current capabilities are. So I think one question to ask is, where is our data? And if you get a really long answer uh, that involves the data being in 20 or 30 different places and whatever else, maybe that's a cause of concern. The second question to ask is, well, how much do we spend organizing, structuring, um, and putting that data in a usable format every year? Ask them that question, and then you can ask follow-on questions about where are we spending that money and whatnot. Because maybe there's a way to just collect it better in the first place and not spend so much money cleaning it up later. So where is our data? How much do we spend organizing it and cleaning it up? Thirdly, what's your experimentation framework? So if I come to you tomorrow saying, I wanna be able to make this prediction, how are you gonna structure that experiment? Um, and having a really solid framework that builds in metrics, that builds in a way to understand why um, certain predictions were made is sort of decomposable and understandable and reproducible is really important because otherwise you can't iterate fast if you don't have a good experimentation framework. Thirdly, where are your people? Um, are you putting them all in one room and they're completely removed from the business or are they out there in the business with, um, with the business line managers understanding the problems every day? Where are your people? And then finally, what roles are changing? Uh, I think that's a really important question, you know, because it's not the case that you can just hire a whole bunch of software engineers 
um, these days. You've got to hire data engineers and data product managers and other roles that are very specific to this AI first century um, and that are very specific to building an AI first company. So again, where is our data? How much do we spend processing it? What experiment framework do you have? Where are your people and what roles are changing? I think they're five questions that someone can ask to get a really good picture of where resources are being allocated and what capabilities you have. Take that one step further. You are an advisor to you know, major organizations around the world, consulting with firms you're investing in and others that are trying to you know, be an AI first company. When you see organizations do it right, are there some specific alignments that are like crucial as in you know, having AI absolutely report to the CTO or not the CTO to the CEO so again, she or he becomes acclimatized in the language and the knowledge. Are there any, any patterns that you see that could mm. be fairly replicable across industry, size of company, anything that is easily replicable that could help some companies shortcut and learn from the lessons of others? Yeah, for sure. Just sticking with the organizational structure for a moment, you know, the pattern I see is a little bit of centralization in terms of centralizing on the same set of tools, the same computers, the same practices around data management, but a lot of decentralization in terms of talent distribution. So centralizing tools, but distributing talent. That's one thing I see that goes right. The second thing in terms of alignment is around language, you know, what are we using to describe the competitive advantage we have so that we all are on the same page and we all understand what we have to do to build it? What are the components of it? So the second thing is about language. Um, and I think the other thing that is really important to be aligned on is policy. You know, you've got to responsibly manage the data that you collect from customers or consumers. You've got to responsibly manage that data because governments will, should and will be um, very careful uh, about how they're going to be regulating this over the next decade. You know, your customers aren't silly. They want to know that if they're contributing something, if they're contributing data, they're getting a quid pro quo. And this data is really important, you know, and you can't just keep obfuscating it and go, well, it's not our problem because we collected it from someone else who collected it from someone else. You know, it's ultimately going to be your problem if there's a data breach. So being really aligned on what your values are and what policy you have in place to protect those values um, that ultimately protects the data of the um, people that you work with is really important as well. Ash Fontana, you know you're leg legit when uh, Eric Schmidt is the top endorsement on the back of your book, if a company wants to connect with you to learn more about how to implement the concepts in your book or work with you on your own advisement, how can someone reach out to you? Um, it's very easy. It's Ash Fontana. It's right there on the front of the book, A-S-H-F-O-N-T-A-N-A, -A, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Gmail, Ash Fontana Gmail. Um, just go for it. Um, feel free to read the book and send me any feedback you have at all, any questions. I want to know. You know, is there a term that I need to help you understand better? Is there a framework that I can help you implement? Um, please do contact me with anything you've got. So I'll end where I started. If you want to build your career, buy two copies of the book, one for yourself and read it, and buy one for perhaps the leader over your leader and send it to her or him. 
and tell them that you thought it might help their relevance as well. Ash, thanks for your time today. The book is The AI First Company, How to Compete and Win with Artificial Intelligence. Ash, thanks for joining us today on Leadership. Thank you very much. This is the most generous of you. Take care. And thanks for listening. We try to bring a broad variety of topics, and I think we try to look for people who are leaning out in technologies, initiatives, corporate resources, tools, whatever it is, and I hope today you feel a little more comfortable talking about the AI uh, language. And I think the glossary in the back of the book is phenomenal. If all you did was just buy the book and read the 10 or 12 pages and had a working knowledge of Ash's terms, you'll be much more strategically competitive in your own career. We hope you enjoyed today's interview. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.